The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here. Hello and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. We are live here from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference. If you hear any background noise, that's intentional. We're smack dab in the middle of the exhibit hall at the Discovery Data Booth. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have found that time in their lives that they threw caution to the wind and went all in, which is the conference theme, and gave themselves permission to be successful. The genesis of this podcast is based on the great appreciation for the lives of Dr. Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place for advisors to come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. And our guest this afternoon is Kevin Gret, who's the president at Ultimus Fund Distributors. Hey, Hi. Kevin. Yeah, it's nice to, nice to see you guys. Thank you. You've been in the industry quite a while on the asset manager side of the industry, which is not advisors, but people who are managing assets for a living. You know, what are you seeing going on out there? There's been a big passive run the past 10 years. Are we seeing a change of that from passive to active? Is it a mix? What's going on? I, I think what we're seeing is it, it probably leveling off a little bit. And obviously, it's been a, a huge topic for the last several years. Um, because what we've seen is the passive managers starting to eat into the market share of the active managers. But I, I do expect, and I think we're starting to see some signs that that's slowing. And, you know, I think what advisors are starting to do is realize that there's you know, value on both sides and there are certain asset classes that makes more sense to get, you know, cheap beta. Uh, but there are still, you know, many asset classes where uh, an active manager can add significant value. And so what they're doing is they're, you know, using a combination of both passive and active. And again, I think on a move-forward basis, what we'll probably see, particularly on the active side, is managers being more deliberate about introducing strategies where active management and active fund selection uh, can add value and can you know, drive you know, active share and you know, contribute meaningfully you know, to you know, better performance inside of you know, portfolios. So. Have you seen active managers survive over the past few years and they're waiting for the market to change and have they been successful? Well, I, I think we're seeing both. I mean, I think we're seeing uh, a lot of active managers thrive. I mean, again, there are certain active you know, managers that, that we've seen grow significantly. Uh, we've seen, you know, primarily when we look at, you know, we work with about 200 mutual fund families, and within those 200, uh, there is a little bit of a bias as far as the ones that have been very successful to the ones that are working in capacity-constrained asset classes like small cap or emerging markets or you know, things along those lines. Um, where we've also seen some success, and again, I, I don't know that I have a great explanation other than that the funds, you know, have unique attributes to them, and they tend to be a little bit concentrated, but we actually have two all-cap managers, which kind of flies in the face of, you know, some of the trends we've seen towards passive management uh, that have done very well and have grown incredibly well over the last few years, you know, kind of during this time where uh, passive managers have, have had, you know, had you know, kind of a pretty nice run-up. Um, so I think, again, you know, moving forward, you know, I, I expect we'll see more of that. I think that for you know, certain asset classes, again, particularly those that are capacity constrained, uh, there will always be a home for active managers. Uh, the other thing that I think has, has happened, at least over the last you know, several years, and maybe we've seen some recent, recent volatility that's maybe the first you know, initial signs that maybe the market's going to you know, start having more volatility embedded in them, is that most active managers tend to thrive where there's volatility. That's where there's more inefficiencies in the market that they can exploit and where their models and, you know, kind of their active fund selection or stock selection pays off. 
Uh, but when we've been in a run-up where you know everything's generally doing relatively well, um, there's no reason to you know pay for active management when again beta can you know, be so inexpensive and then obviously in some cases now virtually free. So I think that's part of the trend that we've been seeing recently. You know, in the past ten years, we've also seen a huge rise in ETFs. Sure. Is that something that you think might continue? Is there something there that we're not seeing? What's what's well, I, that about? I mean, I think that, you know, obviously, I, I don't think ETFs are going away by any stretch of the imagination. And obviously, you know, although there's certainly concentration of the most successful firms at the top, I mean, when you look at the top 50 firms in the mutual fund space, they're obviously all doing very well. But the t- when you look at the top 50 ETFs, I mean, again, there's going to be a wide disparity. I mean, there's heavy concentrations uh, of the ones who entered the market earlier. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, iShares and, and Spiders and, and things along those lines. Um, and obviously, there's been some recent legislation that has made introducing exchange-traded funds as a pooled vehicle to, you know, articulate a strategy more attractive. Um, there's, you know, been some exemptive relief around uh, some of the filing requirements. And, you know, so I, I do think that's going to continue. But, you know, there are still some limitations of exchange-traded funds. And quite frankly, you know, Ultimus offers, you know, exchange-traded funds and mutual funds. And so we, we don't necessarily, you know, have a position on, on which is, is better or worse. Uh, but we do find that there's a lot of, you know, money managers that will come to us or asset managers that will come to us, uh, even those that offer a fund right now, and they see this trend towards exchange-traded funds, and they think that, you know, maybe it's a better and, and oftentimes a less expensive way to articulate their strategy, uh, and that's really that's really not the case. I mean, the, 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 the end vehicle may be less expensive, but the administration involved and, and the, the actual operating expenses of an exchange-traded fund are actually higher than, than a mutual fund. Um, where that savings comes that, that it, you know, compresses the overall expense ratio of an exchange-traded fund is from the management fee. So when ETF is more expensive than a mutual fund? To operate, yes. To operate. operate. And, and obviously as such, particularly where, where, where we're operating most of the time is, of course, with smaller managers or startup managers, uh, and particularly on the mutual fund side, to, to give you some indication of it, Typically, and again, I'm using these in the most broadest of terms, but a, a break-even for a mutual fund will be, you know, will be less than the break-even for an exchange-traded fund. And, and obviously, again, if, if you're an asset manager trying to enter a pooled vehicle space so that you have, uh, again, a pooled vehicle that you can, you know, work with advisors on, um, you will break even quicker on a mutual fund in, in most cases. There's also been a rise in interval funds. Sure. Sure. So talk a little bit about that. Well, and, and again, part of part of what's driving that, and again, you know, there it's still a very, very small segment of the market. I mean, the last time I checked, uh, I think there were 60 total interval fund strategies, you know, compared to, you know, the thousands of exchange-traded funds and the thousands of mutual funds. Um, but we are seeing upticks in, in, in launches. Uh, we're starting to see larger managers, BlackRock being amongst them, Apollo being amongst them, introduced interval funds. Uh, and, and really what's driving that is they're in many ways, a, a more a superior vehicle to a private fund. A lot of RAs don't like working with private funds. They're they're liquid. They generally uh, kick off K1s for you know tax reporting. So there's a lot of limitations that you'll have in a private fund. And interval funds, although still not widely adopted, and again there still are some technology issues, particularly working with the platforms. But ultimately, if you're a private fund manager who's working with a a product that has you know, relatively illiquid holdings, uh, an interval fund is a good, you know, for lack of a better term, hybrid vehicle that can allow you to start entering more retail-oriented markets that are you know, advisor or broker sold. And we're certainly seeing some, some platforms start to integrate them a little more effectively than others. So. so where should asset managers spend their time? Working, working, spend their time, because time is now a huge commodity for everybody going after advisors, but now we're seeing a big, bigger rise in the center of influence, people sure. like investment and stuff. So 
where where are they focusing? Well, I mean, I think that I think the trick is, and, and again, there's different ways that you can you know try to identify these the, you know the individuals that, that are important to to target to try to raise assets in, in whatever your product is. But you know, to your point, we're we're seeing less fewer and fewer advisors, and probably even you know a more exaggerated version of that in the in the broker and broker dealer world where a lot of the times the individual you might be talking to is not the one that's necessarily tasked with the investment selection. Uh, they'll have a team of analysts or they're oftentimes working with a, uh, a turnkey asset management platform like a Franker or an Asset Mark or you know, an InvestNet where the selection process being made by someone other than the people at the RIA or someone other than the you know, people working in the broker's office. Um, and so again, it, it is a challenge to identify like where, where is that decision being made? I mean, there's certainly a, a larger RIAs that are doing it in-house. Um, and, but a lot of broker dealers are starting to put together recommended lists or calling the, the no total number of funds on their platform. So it's definitely a challenge. Uh, and again, part of my job is to help them you know, you know, look through you know, all of these different opportunities and try to identify where is their time best spent given their size, the nature of their strategy, and, and some of the other dynamics of their product. So. Are the number of asset managers growing or shrinking? good question, and I, I may not have a great answer, again, particularly yeah. on my side. I mean, what we've seen is the number of fund launches has slowed a bit, and we, we've actually had a, a pretty good year for 2019, which is, which is phenomenal, but, you know, the number of new funds entering has, has declined. You know, we've, again, been generally fortunate. We haven't seen a lot of liquidations, but that, you know, the industry certainly has. And what we've seen a lot of, and, and again, I'm sure you may have explored this, you know, in the past, but we've seen a lot of mergers and acquisitions where, you know, smaller fund families or a lot of aggregator firms, larger firms are coming in and, and buying a few smaller fund managers and aggregating them under one fund family to try to get some economies of scale, you know, put a, you know, kind of a unified distribution force against the aggregated, you know, underlying funds. Challenges with that, too, but we're starting to see a lot more of that. So tell us a little bit about Ultimus and, and what you do and how you support asset managers. Sure. So, uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, Ultimus is, is a fund administrator. So our core competencies are fund administration, fund accounting, transfer agency. We, we serve as a legal distributor for the for the vast majority of our clients. And so that's, that's the core of what we do. And you know, again, I think we do it very well. We've been doing it for about 20 years. Uh, we've had some, uh, you know, recent acquisition activity of our own. Uh, so we've grown pretty substantially, you know, since I, you know, I joined Ultimus about six years ago. So obviously, you know, we do an exceptional job of all those core competencies. The role that I have with the firm is both the president of our broker-dealer uh, and the director of our distribution strategies is to support our clients in their efforts to grow their fund. And again, I've worked for, you know, other similar organizations, built different, you know, similar programs to what we do right now. What I like about the program we've built is really twofold. One, it's part of our distribution offering. I mean, there's there's requirements that we have as a legal distributor to support our clients. Things like uh, helping to you know execute selling agreements with the broker dealers, uh, paying 12B1 payments if they exist, you know, um, overseeing or supervising licensed individuals if they're on staff or some of our partners. So there's any number of things that we have to do as a statutory underwriter of the funds. The program that we built at Ultimus is additive to that, but not additive cost. It's just hopefully additive value. And so you know, we built what we call the Ultimus Distribution Advantage Program, and it has five components that are really you know, geared towards you know, hosting monthly webinars with you know, intermediaries or different marketing partners or you know, different product structures that we don't offer to help them better understand kind of the, the distribution environment. We built a pretty comprehensive website that you know, articulates any number of things that are going on in the distribution landscape. It's got a conference calendar, and it's got a lot of information about the intermediaries and how pricing is structured and what the minimum requirements are. 
You know, we also do you know, things like shared events where we'll try to co-sponsor a number of events each year with our partners. And then we've also uh, built what we call the Market Resource Center, which is, you know, again, trying to work with outside providers, you know, firms that provide services to try to come up with, you know, either customized versions of those services that kind of speak to what our clients, you know, need or try to kind of use our size and our scale and the influence that we have with kind of the client base that we have to, to try to get, you know, quite frankly, you know, preferred pricing structures in place. So, so how did you get your start in the industry? I joined, I joined the, the, I guess we call it the financial services industry back in the mid-90s. Uh, like a lot of people, I started on the wrong side of an 800 number. Eventually, I gravitated to being an internal wholesaler. Uh, and from there, you know, a lot, you know, like everyone else, like you, you make these decisions without the foresight to where they end ultimately lead to. But my career kind of started gravitating towards more of a national accounts or key accounts type of role. Uh, and then I ultimately found myself working for an asset manager, but actually being employed by an administrator. Uh, which was kind of a unique situation. And uh, as that evolved and, and, and things kind of shifted in that space, I ultimately started working directly for the administrator and trying to provide what we call national account types of services, building relationships with the intermediaries, trying to engage research analysts, better understanding you know, the relevance of different share classes and all the different dynamics that might go into you know, a more successful distribution strategy. But rather than working for a single asset manager, as I've done you know, for the majority of my career, kind of working in a more you know, holistic approach to you know, initially started with working with a number of serious trust clients, and then it, again it opened up to you know working with collective trusts and exchange traded funds and other structures to again try to articulate some best practices around those types of vehicles. And now you're president of a broker dealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get it, it probably sounds better than it is. Uh, again, you know, we we don't have a full service broker dealer. You know, we have a number of licensed individuals, but you know, the the, the truth of the matter is, I've got a, a great team in place of lawyers and compliance uh, folks that you know do. You know, the majority of the heavy lifting there, but they needed a, a face of the franchise, so I guess I got, I got called for that. Yeah, so what keeps you up at night? You know, not not too much these days, I have to say. I mean, I think our industry is very healthy right now. Um, you know, obviously, you know, for those that follow the administrative side, I mean, there's been a lot of consolidation uh, of administrators, so there's certainly fewer than there were before. Um, certainly fewer than there were, you know, a number of years ago. Uh, obviously, the markets, and again, I'm certainly not a capital capital markets analyst or anything along those lines, but, uh, you know, much like our clients, you know, the markets have a great influence on our, our ability to generate revenue. Um, so not too much right now. I mean, it's certainly nothing that's well within our control. Mm -hmm. so. Do you think asset managers can succeed? Yeah, not only can they, they do succeed, you know, and again... <laughs> I mean, the, the challenges they have is there's so many different things that can go into whether they're successful or not. Not all of them are within their control. Um, you know, I do think there's a misconception, and, and again, particularly at Schwab, you know, we see some very, very large firms here that have been very, very successful and have literally built armies to, to drive their distribution efforts. But that's typically not what our clients look like. You know, I mean, they, you know, we have some very, very successful clients. Clients have literally raised billions of dollars with with sales teams of just just a, just a handful of people. And, and part of that's getting making sure you have the right people. Part of that's making sure you have the right product and that the product is structured correctly, right total expense ratio, you know, the right share classes, that you're, you're in the right platforms, you're focusing on the right prospects. And so, the right story. And, and, and the right story, exactly. And, and just trying to understand how your your portfolio fits within within the you know the audience that you're trying to attract assets from. So, so if somebody wants to start an asset management firm, what advice do you have to give to them? I mean, it's not necessarily advice that I would give, and, and I think one of the things that Ultimus has done well, which maybe plays into why I sleep, sleep pretty well at night, is, you know, I think we're very honest with clients. I mean, this is a really hard industry, and, it, and it's certainly harder in many ways than it was when I was younger. You know, not every not every firm is going to make it, and that's and that's that's tough to hear. And what it takes to be successful is is a lot. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a long time commitment. I mean, unfortunately, like as an example. You know, we're driven by Morningstar. Morningstar kind of dictates the terms of whether a fund appears to be successful. 
Um, so there's, you know, Morningstar doesn't even start rating funds until you have a three-year track record. So it can, it can feel like a really long three years trying to get to that point. That's not to say there's, certain, there's no opportunity until you get to three years, but it's, it's just one example. The other example is that, you know, smaller funds are harder to sell. You know, a lot of RAAs and a lot of intermediaries and a lot of analysts only want to be a certain percentage of a fund. So if you're a small fund, you know, you have to work with a certain segment of the RA base that can, you know, actually take a digestible portion of that fund and feel okay with it. So when you're small, you can't work with the Edward Joneses in their models, or you can't work with a lot of the large, you know, the, the, the turnkey asset management platforms that would have, you know, be, they just have too big of an allocation. The fund couldn't, the fund couldn't help, you know, in, in a healthy way handle it. So it's it's trying to think about, you know, how do you successfully grow the fund, get through those years where, where you're a little bit leaner, and that's part of what Ultimus tries to do is, is try to, you know, work with their clients to, to, to give them ways that they can kind of keep the cost a little bit more confined until they until they start getting up to scale. Well, congratulations. You've had a great couple of years and good things ahead. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. How do people find Ultimus if they want to learn more? Uh, you obviously can go to our website, ultimusfundsolutions.com. You know, again, there's not very many of us, so if you Google admin, you know, fund administration, there's only going to be a handful that come up, and hopefully we'll be near the top. And again, they can certainly reach out to me as well. So. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. We'd like to thank the folks at Discovery Data for hosting us and Charles Schwab for having us at their conference. For everyone at Iris Media Works and the Permission to Succeed production team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thank you so much for joining us. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here.